tonight on Arena. The new chicken run, the latest Godzilla. Uh, what happens next? And I like movies or the films up for review. And we look at the music books of the year 2023. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the programme at RTE Arena. And we start this evening with our movie reviews. Tara Brady and Chris Wasser have been to see four new releases between them. Um, remember, Chicken Run, the highest grossing stop motion film in history. 23 years on, Sam Fell and team have dropped a sequel. Chicken Run, Dawn of the Nugget. And continuing our stroll down memory lane, remember all the Godzilla films of the past? Well, the latest from Takashi Yamazaki brings the monster into an already devastated post-war Japan. Our third offering is I Like Movies, story of a young movie buff who dreams of going to film school in New York. And then there's Meg Ryan, director. Yes, The Sleepless in Seattle. And When Harry Met Sally Star directs herself and David Duchovny in a film called what happens later? With me in studio, Tara Brady and Chris Wasser. Let's begin with the old nugget that is Chicken Run. Uh. Grown, yes, I did say that. Um, Chris Wasser uh, has said that boy, he wants to get as many puns in as possible when yeah. it comes to the Chicken Run review. Before you do that, Chris, maybe you could remind us why the original Chicken, Chicken Run, 23 years ago, almost a quarter years. of a century ago, why was it so good? Uh, I mean, it's uh, it's still up there for me in terms of uh, one of the classics of stop motion cinema. It was mm. the first stop motion. Uh, I think it's still the highest grossing stop motion film ever made. It made a couple of hundred million for uh, the folks at Armin Animations and DreamWorks who helped produce this. Um, it just was a technical marvel. The care and craft and the skill that went into stop motion cinema, which or into the stop motion, which is a, a, mm. a craft that I will always be in awe of. Um, and also a classic British Christmas cracker humour, you know, and also the, the the plot it was a glorious pastiche of, of, of the great escape just all of the ideas in it the voice cast yeah. uh, the, the the level of attention and, and crap behind the scenes it, it was just a spectacle um, nobody asked for a sequel though that, that was the thing yeah. I feel as though it did everything it was supposed to by the time it was finished it was one of the films that had no loose ends it had no what yeah. ifs no eggs left um, unhatched sorry about that it just <laughs> you, you didn't watch it and think I want to see more of this so, so I'm kind of baffled as to A why they've done it and B why 23 Three years later, they thought this would be a good idea. They went out on a wing and a prayer and, <laughs> and did no, it. Not you're not playing that game. Ah, oh, Tara, come on, bah humbug. Um, I think you're not playing the game probably because you're quite disappointed on a few levels. What was your first set of disappointments? Peter Lord and Nick Park? Um, well, I think, that, well, there's a few things here. Now, to, now, to be fair, I'm I'm very, very wary and, and we're good and with good cause of of belated sequels because I think very often we see them and they're very kind of lazy mm. reliance on on brand recognition and intellectual property and like the the Luther film that came out earlier this year was just was completely unnecessary um I did, like Space Jam a New Legacy was was an absolute disaster um yeah. in in term in on any number of levels it was it was just kind of rubbish um I I think there there's a few issues here now now it's not that kind of bland corporate soulless thing yeah. nothing from Mardman ever could be I, I was actually on the set of this movie and they're still sitting there with their plastic thing things with like these like yeah. like lovely sets that are really handcrafted you know they, they have to go to great lengths to get the right kind of felt for different things and you know it's and it's absolutely it's, it still has that kind of level of detail and that sort of craft to it 
And there, there are some gags in there that I wouldn't have missed for a world. The knitted bicycle would not have worked in any other medium. Which and I won't hear a word about the knitted <laughs> yeah. bicycle. And the knitted bicycle has to be seen to be on, to yeah. understand. Um, the, and the, the, like, the like what, what a brilliant and like, you know, you, people who understand their clay and understand their medium that can like put that gag in and go, look, look how great this is. And, and there are, there are some, some lovely things. It does on the other issue I do have, and I think everyone has them, like, and, and including some of the original cast, is that I I do have issues about the recasting. Mm. I, I think part yeah. part of the charm of the original was it was it had Mel Gibson at this moment when he's aging out of being an action hero, yeah. and it's questioning the action hero persona, um, and that's actually blended into part of the plot. And and by changing the cast up, you know, you could have done something really Gibson, interesting. Can you understand the absence of Mel Gibson given that? Okay, I'm not. I'm not really understanding the um, absence of Julia um, Sawala for for cer- certainly who and had played um, Ginger in the last. Yeah, in and the I original. think and she 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 is certainly questioned being recast and has as as accused them of, of ageism. And I don't think she's been given a necessarily a satisfactory answer as to why no. she was. Recast. Also, can I point out there are stop motion characters and you use your voice. You can be any age you want yeah. to yeah, be. There's, if, yeah, there's there is that small detail. Yeah, you, there's definitely that. She yeah. did say that she recorded something and, and put it online to say that my voice is almost exactly the same even after 20 years. It almost feels as though, and this is me just kind of guessing, that that Armin said, look, I don't know, we, we don't know if Mel Gibson is the family-friendly draw he used to be and we might actually catch and a Mel, lot of trouble. We should explain Mel, for those who don't know the original film, Mel is Rocky. And Mel, yep, he's Rocky, he's the rowdy American rooster who comes in and, you know, has all of the hens fawning over him and then it turns out <laughs> that he can't actually fly but he does help them build <laughs> yeah. the airplane that helps them escape this chicken farm. And uh, he's not the hero of the film, that is Julius Wallace Ginger, Ginger, but he's a wonderful sidekick. And in not casting Gibson, it's almost as though the team said at Arman said look let's not catch heat over people saying oh you didn't cast Gibson let's also get someone new to play Julia Sawala's character so but, Sandy Newton comes in to do but, that but Tandaway Newton is only four years younger than Julia Sawala yeah. so I don't get this whole her voice sounded too old and also mm. I don't get what Sam Fell has been going around saying it's more of a reboot it's not it's a direct mm. sequel it picks up almost immediately after the last film ended and also there are four or five supporting uh, characters or supporting actors in there who are lending the voice that were in the original Yeah. yeah. so it yeah. does doesn't add up. All right. Uh, Rocky and Ginger have a little chick in this yes. one, uh, a chick called Molly. Yes, um, played by um, Bella Ramsey. And, you know, th- this is kind of the nice idea. So, so she, they, they're on this idyllic island where they escaped to after after the first film. And, and But she, of course, is looking for, you know, being a youngster is, is yearning for adventure and, and pastures new. And mm. she sees these colourful trucks going by, these candy coloured trucks, because one of the things the film does really well is it, if the the first film was sort of post-war and this one is, is 60s, so you get the kind of James Bond villain mm. lair and, and you get all also a lot of kind of pop art and pop art colours. Um, so she sees these colourful trucks with, you know, anthropomorphised smiling chickens in a bucket and thinks they must be going somewhere fantastic. Now, obviously, the, uh, no chicken should ever yearn to be the anthropomorphised chicken in a bucket. Yeah. Um, and, and and we know that, but but she doesn't and, and, and she heads off. So what we have here, and this is a really neat idea, um, the, like 
the the first film was the great 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 escape. It was a breakout film, and this film is a caper film. It's a break in film. It's it's like it's like Ocean's Eleven or or or, or Mission Impossible. It's mm. break in, get like you know r- rescue the chick and, and get out of there. So so that's the basic premise, and that is a good idea. But it's certainly not you know it certainly doesn't have all of the charm yeah. that, um, that, that, the, that original the original had. had. And it is not a pun to say that Molly wants to play the coop because that is what she no, wants that, to do. No, that's literally. Exactly <laughs> There's no pun at all involved yeah, okay. there. So here she is, Bella Ramsey as Molly, uh, the daughter of Ginger, plays as as Chris was saying, Beth Andaway Newton now, and Rocky played by Zachary, Zachary Levi in this uh, particular version. And they're talking about um, Molly's desire to move away from home. Rocky, little help? Maybe I could crawl on weekends, you know? Why am I not ready? I'm a big, brave girl. You always say so. I know. But you're still a child. Says who? Says me and your dad. Right, Rocky? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yes, listen to your mom, kiddo. Oh, oh, how about just half a crow? Like a... Or a... You know, something that's a little shorter. I'm going over to see those trucks. Because I am a lone free ranger. Like dad was. I've seen his poster. He used to live over there, and you did too. <laughs> hmm. Did I say that? I don't... I don't remember. That's it. Molly, you are not leaving this island. You can't make me stay here. You're not the boss of me. Actually, I am. Look. Molly, you've got everything you want right here. Except for one thing. And what's that? Freedom. There you go. Um, I have to say, that's a minute and six seconds long. Um, uh, Rocky, played by Zachary Levi, Bella Ramsey playing Molly, and Sandra Wynne Newton playing the part of Ginger, all from the latest, uh, the new Chicken Run, Chicken Run Dawn of the Nugget. It's a minute and six seconds long. It plods even mm. across a minute yeah. and six seconds. Yeah. I'm sorry to say that I was checking my watch throughout this film. Uh, you shouldn't go a minute in an Arabian animation without there being a, a decent one-liner in there. Um, and I did find at times that this, it kind of dragged, it was a little bit rusty in terms of the plot. It was a little bit, um, and actually in contrast, a little bit too perfect in terms of the animation. Arabian has always been at its best when it's imperfect, when you can see the little marks and sometimes even when you can see fingerprints on the clay. Oh, like, the and perfect it's just, is the enemy it, of the possible. Exactly, yeah. 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 And I just found that the CG assistance, because there has been some CG assistance in, in the more contemporary Arabian stuff, that was a little bit distracting. It was all a bit too sunny. It was a bit too, it was a bit too, um, it was a bit mm. too polished, uh, let's say. And I think as well, sometimes this film is designed or feels as though it's designed for a younger audience. Maybe for, you know, a Saturday morning kind of audience. You know, something that the kids will watch while maybe parents are getting breakfast. That shouldn't be the case with Armin. Armin has always had this u- universal yeah. appeal. I remember going to see the original actually with my mum and dad and I was probably about 11 or 12 at the time. I found it funny. You know, my younger cousins found it funny and my mum and dad found it funny. With this one, I don't think you'll have the grown-ups in the room laughing at it. I mean, it's the... Uh, P- Peter Lord and Nick Park, who are the creators of the origin, they're involved as executive producers yeah. here. Who uh, were they involved in the scripting? Because the scripting for the first one was zippity zip. 
Um, no, well, I think there's a huge kind of team. Like the, the, one of the things about Aardman is like, well, all film is labour intensive, and there's an mm. awful lot. There's a huge amount of yeah, division stop of labour, but, even more but so. and like you yeah. know, so, cer- certainly they're on hand, certainly they're in the conversation, certainly they're in the, in the script rooms. Um, so so they they definitely do have a hand in it because it's not like it could be yeah. in animation. It's never like a, the director is doing this job and is is standing with a megaphone. Yeah. Everybody has to has to chip in, especially in a place like Aardman where you know the the they own their own. They own yeah. their own company. They, they like everyone who works there has a kind of stake there. Um, so it's it. I mean, they, they, like they're 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 definitely involved. I, I I do think though, there's just kind of a sense that. It's 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 probably just kind of too long. There's no kind of momentum to it, and there's no real reason to do it. Um, I I don't think, and I know that it's another mm. one of those films where they they junked various ideas over the years. At one point, they were going to be focusing on the Rocky character, and and the, you know that didn't happen. Yeah. They couldn't make that work, and then they 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 went back to the drawing board. And it does feel like something that's been overdeveloped, overcooked, you overstuffed. Know, overstuffed. <laughs> Got you to say yeah, it. <laughs> Stars from you on this one, Tara. It, it's still a lovely thing. So, you know, I'm happy to give it a sort of high three. A high three. And what are you saying, Chris? I found it all a bit scrambled there, Sean, oh. to be honest. Sorry about that. Uh, look, it, it just feels a little bit pointless. A little bit like, what, what what's the need for this? So I think, you know, if you go back and rewatch the original instead. That said, it's Aardman. We'll go with three. Right, you're going for three, yeah. so you kind it's of. It's animation. I think yeah. you both want to like it more yeah. than you like it, yes. so you don't want to knock it. There's a touch of that. That's what I'm hearing from both of you. Let's move on then to our second film, set in Burlington, Ontario. A teenager, uh, Lawrence Queller, is obsessed with films and sees a future for himself as a great director. But when he gets to film school, movie all does not go well. The director here is Chandler Levac, uh, created an intriguing character in Lawrence Queller. Tell me about the filmmaker, Tara. Um, so, so this is this is obviously with the name Chandler. You expect that mm. it's that it's going to be some kind of film. Bro. And when you're watching the film, you imagine this is this is the confessions of a young film bro who's who's grown out of this incredibly <laughs> obnoxious stage. And I think it, it's a film that no filmmaker or film critic will watch mm. without having a sort of poignant and incredibly embarrassing <laughs> like pang of of, yeah. of recognition. Um, he's com- the the character that that um, Levac has created. Created is 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 in fact certainly drawn from life, if not her own life. Um, it, it's actually drawn from she did work in a big box blockbuster video store at the at the moment when the film is set, which is around the turn of the millennium. Mm. Um, you know, and 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 this is kind of the kind of classic video store sort of dude, like young dude. Um, <laughs> he 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 does a spectacular job of sort of alienating everybody, and he's completely oblivious to the sort of wants and needs of everyone around him. So he like it starts out, he's got he's got a best pal and as soon as the best pal you know starts having a romance with another the best pal is suddenly pushed away he has like he has this mad notion of going to that that only um, New York and New mm. York University's Tisch School of the Arts is the only place worth going to, and he's going to be taught by Todd Salons and, and and of course this is way beyond his, his single yeah. and widowed mother's means and he's pretty horrible to his mother he is pretty horrible to his mother his poor mother played by Christy Bridges she puts up with an awful lot of abuse from as does Matt his buddy Mm. Um, and then even when he gets the job in the video store he finds himself like he's just 
he's compelled by his boss Alana, played by Romina Dugo, um, and she's she's uh, wonderful in this actually. Yeah. Um, but he he wants to fit in here. He wants to be like the others, and he wants to you know yeah. he wants to be best pals with his boss. Um, but he he still shouts at her, you know, if she's not quick enough with her stories or if she says something about a film that that you know that that he loves. Um, he yeah, he's a bit of a jerk to everyone around him. Well, it's very clever though of Chandler Levesque if you think about it to put then that that it's her story in many ways, but mm-hmm. to put it into yeah. the the mouth of a young man is a clever move. Let's listen to a clip which gives us a sense of just how obnoxious Lawrence Queller is, the film-obsessed teenager here, played by Isaiah Lettinen. He's gone shopping with his mum, uh, played, as Chris mentioned there, by Krista Bridges. How many movies do you have there? Like seven. No, you pick one. One? Are you serious? I can knock who's next. One. Hey, Lawrence. Find everything okay? Yep. Um, look, I know that last time you guys said you weren't hiring, but um, I just wanted to give you a hard copy of my resume. Oh, yeah. Um, thanks. I'll, I'll hold on to that. I, I, I don't know if you know, but Lawrence, uh, he applied to NYU's Tisch School yeah. of the Arts. He's very talented, loves films. Very cool. Um, yeah, Terry, it looks like you have a late fee on your account for $25 for Wild Things. Would you like to pay that off today? No, I would not. <laughs> yeah, so there we had the scene in the movie shop. Uh, Romina Dugal was the, is the owner there, the yeah. boss, who eventually, the Lawrence character, as we heard there, played by um, Isaiah Lettinen and his mum, played by Krista Bridges. How does the story develop? Is it this, is it a romance with the boss or is it just an obsession or what is it? He's obsessed. I think maybe at times he wants to be her and then maybe at times he wants to be with her. It's a bit of a complicated relationship Mm. and you never really get as well that Alana... It's not as if Alana is spending time with him because she knows, oh, this guy is obsessed with me or, oh, he fancies me. And it's nothing like that. She's yeah. just, she genuinely cares for him and, and she wants everything to work out for him because she also realises that, you know, this 90,000 you know, you, tuition fee that you're trying to raise here, you're not going to uh, earn that at, at sequel's yeah. video. Um, so she genuinely cares for him. It's... um. I, I like this a lot, but I will say that the it, it's almost as though the film spends about 70, 75 minutes, far too long, showing us, you know, how obnoxious uh, Lawrence is and then realises, oh, we, we, we better work on ways yeah. to, to make him a better person. And it runs around the place trying to make him a better person, but it doesn't have enough time to do that in. Um, so it kind of I found the, the end a little bit rushed. And, and, and I also wanted to, to see more from Mash, uh, uh, the, the, the best friend, who at one stage, Sean, he describes as a placeholder friend. Oh, until he gets Lord. to college yeah I wanted to Delightful. see more from him and I also yeah. wanted to see more from the mother even if it actually if this was just a film about the relationship between the mother Terry and Lawrence it would have worked or if it had just been a film about the relationship between the boss and him there was just a few more things that I would have liked I, to, was, to I was asking both of you as we were listening to the clip how much you liked it and you both were quite positive about it to what extent is the kind of the perhaps the the embarrassment of recognition part of the liking here I know you can oh, be I, objective obviously Tara I, yeah. but if you mean, <laughs> If if you've lived the world of the blockbuster or, or whatever mm. particular video shop you went to, in uh, if you've lived that life, if you've been involved in film yeah. and are a big fan of film, it's it's going to speak to you more, I guess. No, no, definitely though. I I mean, the, uh, there's you know the idea that you're determined to think that like Paul Thomas Anderson's Punch Drunk Love is going to be the best film of all time, and then you walk out of there and say Paul Thomas Anderson's Punch Drunk Love <laughs> is the best film of all time. It will certainly strike a chord for for yeah. many for many people. 
who were film bros as a teenager. But I also think though it's actually a very kind of textured portrait as well. I mean, I think I think there's the it, it's really interesting because um, um, Isaiah Latinen, who plays the lead character, described it for late as Ladybird for incels, which is a really good <laughs> hook. Though though it's not it's not as nasty as that could have been. Mm. Um, like he's not he's not really an incel. He's just kind of very rough around the edges, and he does have genuine kind of tragedy in his background, which which is gra- gradually revealed. Right. And it's also worth noting that the adults around him aren't all that perfect either. You know, they they make mistakes and 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 they they yeah. do things wrong as well. So you know, he's a kid in a kind of imperfect world, and you know, he's got a lot of rough edges. Stars from you on this one, Chris. I think it's the first film in a long time where I came away, uh, like as a, as a as a feature debut, where I came away saying, I want to see more from everyone involved here, from the yeah. entire cast, yeah. from from the yeah. director, uh, because there are elements there of uh, Greta uh, Greta Gerwig's work, Cameron Crowe's early work. It's a big um, promise. So, yeah. So there's there's a lot of promise in Channel of Back. So I'm going to go with three and a half out of five. And what are you saying, Tara? Oh yeah, no, definitely. I I, w- I would go with f- with four, and it really hard for people like who who remember such things it harks back to things like Clerks and High Fidelity and, and those yeah. kind of film bro films yeah, and, and I, so oh, if, you, oh, if you're a fan of those or miss those in your life this, this is a place to go to Alright uh, three and a half and four respectively there for I Like Movies and let us move on to movie number three you've seen this one Chris Meg Ryan's directorial debut What Happens Later which also stars Meg Ryan opposite David Duchovny um we're in the world of a rom-com and who better to bring us into that world than Meg Ryan certainly as an actor in the early part of her career you mean if she touched a rom-com it was gold it was gold and it was gold whenever she was working with Nora Ephron uh, the wonderful filmmaker to whom this film is actually uh, uh, dedicated yeah. and at times it seems as though Meg Ryan is trying to kind of just make a film at times actually this film reminded me or made me think of what and this is a weird thought what uh, it would have looked like if Nora Ephron had adapted a Samuel Beckett play and that sounds very strange but you'll know you, you might you might get what I mean when I tell you the plot but we have two people People who are stranded at an airport. Their flights have been redirected mm. on February 29th. Leap day is, is a magical part of this story. Um, their, their flights have been redirected to this regional airport in the middle of nowhere. The storm of the century is en route. Their phones are dead. And these two people, you've got Willa, played by Meg Ryan, and you've mm. got Bill, played by David Duchovny. Uh, they meet under the departures board and they haven't seen one another in 25 years. They used to be boyfriend and girlfriend. They had their whole lives together planned out, but it didn't work out. So now they have this night to spend at the airport. They have time to catch up it starts off the usual way there's small talk there's kind of you know awkward attempts at you know just just trying to basically what have you been up to and then they open up they share secrets that they've never shared before there's tears there's drama there's arguing but it gets to a stage where the the entire airport shuts down and nobody else around them ever talks there's no other speaking we do hear one other voice we hear Hal Leggett who's the uh, airport announcer but there are no other roles in this film and it begins to push this magical element so you start to kind of think to yourself this is a little bit like Meg Ryan's Waiting for Godot it's a very very strange endeavour All right, Uh, (laughs) which means boy doesn't get girl and then boy doesn't get girl again that's what happens pretty much (laughs) okay what happens later Um, here we have Willa played by Meg Ryan Bill uh, Duchovny uh, playing the character of Bill, I beg your pardon, and you'll hear the voice of the uh, announcer in the background here as well. Attention travellers, the National Weather Service has identified the storm as a bomb cyclone. Bomb cyclone? Yes. We never used to have bomb cyclones. No, they seem new. 
had bombs and we had cyclones, but not together. I know. Also, rain trains. Flash droughts. Fire tornadoes. Fire tornadoes. Hail hurricanes. Haley canes. And you're making that last oh, one up. Oh, so what? It, well, it's bad enough as it is without you making it up. You have a disturbing appetite for chaos, W. Davis. That was Thundersnow. Thundersnow? Yes. yes. Jesus. And the voice of the uh, the announcer speaks back yeah, to Bill strange. and Willa. And obviously, W. Davis, Willa Davis, uh, Bill Davis would be William Davis as well. So there are all kinds of... Um, yeah, a lot met- of Davises. <laughs> I did wonder, why didn't she get Tom Hanks to play this? Imagine how meta it would be if what happens later starred Meg Ryan and, and, and Tom Hanks. Yeah, we'll get an extra star anyway. Um, but look, David Duchovny, he's never quite made something like this before, but he knows how they work. And then you've got Meg Ryan, who's a pro and a veteran at this stage. And it's their chemistry. They, now, I know that clip is a little bit odd, but they do have something between them and they make care about the characters which is an awful lot more than the rom-com does these days Uh, I will say you'd know it was based on a play you'd definitely know because it keeps the two of them it goes to some very strange places but there are worse ways to pass the time I'm going to go with three Worst ways to pass the time. Not sure. <laughs> Damn good fan praise. However, three. What happens later? And finally, uh, Godzilla minus one. There have been a lot of Godzilla movies. This is a Japanese one. Yeah. And this is where Godzilla, I suppose, we've had more Godzilla movies from Japan than anywhere else, Tara. Well, well this is from Toho Studios, which obviously brought out the original mm-hmm. um, uh, Hondo film in, in 1954 and which came back, brought the, resurrected the, the, the films um, in, in 2016 with Shin Godzilla, which was an enormous worldwide hit. This is already a worldwide hit and with, with very good reason it's it's by far the best action film of the year um, w- what it does is that it, it's a prequel to the original 1954 film and one of the reasons that the 1954 film was so popular particularly in Japan mm. was that it, w- it was a way of talking about destroyed cities it was a way about talking about a- atomic destruction um, in, 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 in a way that was palatable because it's not something that you can easily represent or, or, t- or talk about at the time um, and, and this film it, it also has this very interesting background where it came to there was a, this huge sense of distrust in Japan at the moment where it was being written um, over the COVID crisis uh, there was a huge sense of distrust around the government and that's kind of woven into the film here so, so we're back at, we're back at the end of the Second World War um, a young kamikaze pilot pulls up his plane on South Pacific Island um, knowing that he's going to certain death and knowing that the war is over and that it's pointless um, he, he, after, he, there's that, so there's already a sense of survival, survivor's guilt and then he returns to this kind of ruined Tokyo and forms this makeshift family with with a girl and a baby that they found in the rubble. So they're they're characters like like you'd expect from something like Barefoot Gen, very meaningful characters. But I presume we have a Godzilla. And we have a Godzilla. How um, convincing? A a very, very good Godzilla. As ever, like the kind of grammar is that you, you know, you get the flick of the tail and you get the, but but he very much is is the original design and he, and we we kind of chronicle him into this kind of counterfactual history where um, he, where he or she comes up from the depths be, um, be right. caught because of course he, they're awakened by Bikini it at all so does, it's, it's a really really good it does sound like waiting 70 years for a prequel is better than waiting for 23 years for a sequel to Chicken Run yeah it, it, yeah, that's 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 probably true but it, it, it's a very very it's, a, it's an excellent film but it's also a reminder yeah. that a disaster movie can have weight and you know yeah. sort of meaning to it alright uh, stars on that then Tara at least four and a half at least four and a half for Godzilla Minus one. So Godzilla minus one. What happens later? Uh, Chicken Run, uh, Dawn of the Nugget and I Love Movies, the four films that we spoke about this evening.
Every year there are countless books released about music. 2023 alone included memoirs from Britney Spears, Barbara Streisand, Sly Stone, plus a photograph retrospective book from Paul McCartney. But there are many that may have slipped under the radar. And with me this evening, Eamon Sweeney and Peter Murphy for their recommendations of the best books of 2023. Start with you, Eamon. The Season on the Witch, the book of Goth by Cathy Unsworth. Yeah, this uh, it's been a remarkable year for music books about the phenomenon of goth. Like mm. uh, about this around this time last year, Sean, we were kind of talking about the Cure before their concert in the Three Arena, and little did I know there'd be this this avalanche of books. Um, Lord Talhurst, formerly of the Cure, uh, himself a founder member, has written a second book. This one called uh, Goth: uh, A History. John Robb did the Art of Darkness. Um, but the cream of the crop, the number one for me, is Cathy Unsworth. Now, why is it? Why is it so good? The writing is amazing. I'll give you a small sample. Um, she sets out the stall in an, in a, the first chapter called the Rebel Alliance. Mm. She's talking about her childhood, the late seventies, the eighties, and she introduces us to the two women who help, who define for her the so-called season of the witch. One being Margaret Thatcher, who she calls a glowing. Harold's helmeted Britannia in a neat Donegal tweed suit with a pussy bow t- tied around her trident. And then the other is Susie Sue, glowering in fishnets and tie high vinyl boots, hair like raven's wings and eyes of Cleopatra. Every sentence is a zinger. Right. And so it's also, it's a page turner. It's Well, there you go. Every sentence is a zinger. She wrote for Melody Maker. You would want good sentences to be getting the job with Melody Maker. And she was also uh, a background as a crime novelist. So there's your page turner aspect. Yeah. It's yeah. the writing that does it. Do you find anything new out about goth that was kind of surprising to you? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I love the way, and actually all those aforementioned books, like they do, they do look at goth in a very... I suppose a 360 degrees way in a yeah. very kind of holistic way rather than the cliches. So, you know, you do have all sorts of the way the punk bled into it and post-punk and things like suicide and avant-garde music and just how expansive a term and how enduring a term it is. There's a lot to be, to be learned here and just beautiful, beautiful writing. All right. Let, uh, that is, uh, so just to give the title of the book, The Season of the Witch from Cathy Unsworth. Let's move on to Peter and your first choice, An American Girl by Adele Bertzi. Uh, this is uh, your first choice, Peter. Who are we talking about uh, when we talk about Adele Berti and where does she fit in, would you say, to that American pre-punk scene? Okay, well, uh, the official title is Twist in American Girls, published by Z Books. Adele Berti is a post-war kid, um, openly queer, uh, had a schizophrenic mother and grew up in a series of care homes and convents and uh, state care facilities. And as a teen, she ran with like petty thieves and drag queens and gutter snipe musicians in Cleveland. Um, And um, she found her way to New York in the mid-70s. She made friends with Peter Lochner, who was the kind of legendary, tragically doomed guitar player and figure with Per Ubu, one of the major Mm. pre-punk bands. And uh, made friends with him and through him met Lester Bangs. Um, Both those gentlemen died young. She found herself in mid-70s New York, the era of Patti Smith and television and suicide that Eamon just mentioned. And she 
um, became embroiled in the the no wave scene. Lydia launched the contortion. She was a member of the contortions, and she um, was kind of crucial in that sonic youth no wave mm. scene as a keyboard player. And then, um, as that entire scene imploded, uh, she found herself as uh, the leader of the first openly queer all-girl band of the Bloods in the early 1980s. So is it certainly... This is primarily... It's an extraordinary story. uh, It's an extraordinary story that is in there. Uh, uh, But how does it stand stand out as memoir? Many people talking about about this, I think you among them, Peter, as one of the most overlooked books of the year. Well, Amy was just talking about Cathy Unsworth's prose and, and her London word books were, were amazing. Um, the incredible thing about Adele Berte's book is it kind of it doesn't rely on um, name dropping or indeed specifically music. Her prose style is amazing and she's very much in that, mm. what I loved, uh, golden age, early 90s style of writing almost of writers like Mary Gateskill and Tom Spanbauer and Dennis Johnson and she actually understudied with Dorothy Allison who wrote an incredible book called Bastard Out of Carolina, another book called Cave Dweller. So her sentences are absolutely exquisite. So not only do you get you know the amazing insight into into the Ohio scene, but also it's a very sensual book. It's a very kind of groundbreaking book and a really important book in terms of a retrospective right. look at what it was like to grow up in the 1960s, if you can imagine that in in convent home care as a uh, as a gay kid. And it's a book about dance and the joy music and Motown and uh, singing and voices. She actually went on to become an incredibly well-regarded right. session singer. Okay, so Twist and American Girl by Adele Bertie, the uh, first choice of Peter Murphy. Moving on to your second choice, Eamon, I will introduce it by way of this song. It's the unmistakable sound of the undertones and teenage kicks. Uh, Eamon Sweeney and Peter Murphy with me this evening with the, their choice of the best music books of 2023. Eamon's second choice is 75 Revolutions by Stuart Bailey, his biography of Terry Hooley yeah. of Good Vibrations Shop and Good Vibrations, a film of, of a couple of years back. Obviously, intimately associated with the undertones in their Absolutely. early days. Eamon. Absolutely, I know this is the story has been told many times. I suppose most memorably in the Good Vibrations movie starring Richard Dormer. Um, but you know, Terry Hooley was the the DJ, re- renegade DJ turned record shop owner, mm. turned record label boss. That released Teenage Kicks and he got picked up by John Peel of the BBC, and the rest is history. He famously played it twice in a row. When I got emailed about this book, and normally I kind of obviously take a lot of PR guff with a, a very large uh, pinch of salt, but the uh, the publicist who hailed from Belfast just, just in a little kind of comment said something I thought was very striking, that for him growing up in Belfast, that Terry Hooley really was, uh, he felt, their equivalent of a Tony Wilson figure, as in putting Northern Ireland, putting Belfast, putting Derry yeah. on the musical map, an amazing character. Uh, Stuart Bailey, 
I suppose I my long association begins with Stuart Bailey uh, as a teenager being an avid reader of Enemy and Melody Maker and Enemy that he wrote for at the time he did these amazing cover stories introducing me to Public yeah. Enemy and Manic Street Preachers his writing is dynamite uh, the story is brilliant the layout um, which is done by um, uh, Stuart's uh, daughter Betsy is beautiful who also uh, designs this uh, this magazine could could uh, could dig with it that, that he edits and um it is just really fantastic there's yeah. brilliant contributions and from the, the the 75 revolutions of the title refers to yeah. the fact that Terry Hooley yeah. turned 75 in the 75 last this, yeah, yeah so, this year yeah, so and nice uh, way of doing it yeah absolutely yeah. and also his revolutionary spirit that yeah. kind of uh, I won't actually reveal too much because there's some great stories in the book. Good yeah. stories. Well, yeah. anything that has Terry Hooley involved in it has good <laughs> yeah. stories. Whether they're true or not is another day's <laughs> work, I guess. Let us uh, move on to uh, your second choice, Peter. Nick Drake, The Life. This is by Richard Morton. Um, this portrayal, particularly about Nick Drake's early life, is quite interesting, Peter. You couldn't get any further from Terry Hooley. Yeah, story, very basically. different, very different story. Yeah, for sure. Um, and we're talking about the home counties in the in the late sixties, early nineteen seventies. I mean, Nick Drake is you know one of rock and roll's great doomed poets. Uh, you know, twentieth century Arthur Rambo, except you know far far um, far less of a punk rocker. He grew up. Um, he grew up in, in with the, the the son of a ex-army um, uh, entrepreneur called Rodney and a gifted um, pianist and composer, Molly, and had a really um, idyllic upbringing in Warwickshire. Um, pastoral, but not quite posh. But, uh, you know, we think of him as, as uh, haunted or, you know, duende infested, but he had very little reason to be. He was actually nurtured at every turn and had, had a, an amazing upbringing. And... Um, exhibited uncanny musical mm. talent early on, and everybody you you talk to any musician about Nick Drake, and they'll talk about um, his guitar playing and his voicings, and his ability to kind of transpose everything from Bach and Beethoven into classic late sixties pastoral folk, akin to you know yeah. Five Leaves, Leaves Left as the first album. It's a classic. And if that early year, if those early years of Nick Drake's life are not that of the tortured artist that we often expect in these books. What about the later years, which certainly were those of a very tortured man? Something began to pall around about the time of the second record, brighter later. He was like one of those seminal island record signings and seemed to be terminally crestfallen by his inability to break onto to the mainstream. And a lot of that was to, it was a, to do with a terrible passivity or diffidence mm. in his character, where contemporaries like John Martin or Sandy Denny were tough, they were hardy, they were well able to do the pub and the club circuit or whatever. Nick Drake seemed to... Ter- perpetually perplexed by his own yeah. inability to 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 gut it out and to cross over so that seemed to sort of spiral into a into a inward he became more and more solitary he became uh, 
more in, unable to take care of himself, living mm. alone. And, he, and he, had, he had, he still had great support from his parents. And then was there is a sister involved as well? or if I, I his, si- his sister as well, who yeah. wrote a, a, a memoir of her own. In fact, the family come across as, you know, the yeah. heroes of the story. They couldn't have yeah. done more to yeah. support him. A, a lot of people put it down to, you know, he was smoking too much pot or it was drug use, as was the case with, you know, Sid Barrett or many of the stars at the time. This doesn't, what this book, what... Um, what? Richard Morton Jack tends to do is debunk that idea. He seemed to be just a depressive with incipient simple schizophrenia and the last couple of hundred pages are tough reading yeah. indeed. And, uh, but if you Martin, want to know about Nick Drake, yes, this is it. This is Richard Morton may debunk some of those notions. He certainly doesn't debunk Nick Drake's talent and let's sample a little bit of that right now. I never held emotion in the palm of my hand Felt sweet breezes in the top of a tree, but now you're here. Bright in my northern sky. So beautiful, northern sky there from Nick Drake, just the, the, the opening sections of it and that, because uh, it's one of the books that Peter Murphy has chosen for us this evening, Nick Drake, The Life by Richard Morton. Uh, let us move on, Eamon, to your third choice. I thought I heard you speak Women at fact- Factory Records. This is by Audrey Golden. Yeah, this is um, a book published by White Rabbit Books. They've been going for a couple of years and, you know, really have... I think at this stage notched up this amazing mm. kind of um, library of, of incredible titles. But what's kind of um, kind of different about this is it's an oral history about Factory Records. Now, we've heard all about Factory Records. There's been reams of books about Joy Division, New Order, mm. the Mondays, the whole story. Um, but never, and this is kind of where this is very uh, innovative, you know, an oral history that's exclusively from by the female voices Behind the scene, but also in the bands, like Ginny yeah. and uh, uh, Gilbert would probably be the, the more household name here, who's kind of like a um, keyboard player in New Order. Um, so this really is actually a landmark oral history in kind of in many ways and really breathes fresh life into something, to a subject that's been done so many times. times. You thought it couldn't be done yeah, again. it couldn't be yeah. done again, but uh, it's... All right. Fantastic. All right. I thought yeah. I heard you speak Women at Factory Records. And final choice from you, Peter, um, which I think Eamon mentioned this earlier on, The Art of Darkness, The History of Goth by John Robb. Why did this stand out for you in, in its portrayal of goth in particular, obviously? Um, I think John Robb, I mean, the writing is not amazing, but the research is. Uh, and I think it began, the project began as a history of post-punk and then somehow morphed into a history of goth. So what John Robb is really brilliant at doing is viewing it in a much wider lens. So he takes yeah. in everyone from the Romantic Poets to Jim Morrison to Bowie, all the way up to the birthday party and the Virgin Prunes. And what it really frames is that what a um, revolutionary kind of yeah. music it was in terms of incorporating dance and also style and if you bring it up to the present day with Tim Burton's Wednesday Adams dancing to the cramps goo goo muck it seems as relevant yeah. as ever. Well listen um, thanks to both of you for your choices um, quite a year for music books uh, Peter Murphy and Eamon Sweeney with their choices for us this evening here on Arena.
Now, here I am sitting in Studio 7. We've been in a different studio, which I'll tell you about a little bit about later on um, before the end of the programme tonight. But we're in the Radio Centre tonight because it's a very special day for this building. It celebrates its 50th birthday. We are like all the studios in this building, underground, built as they were in 1971 to ensure soundproofing. The largest studio is Studio 1. It's where the concert orchestra rehearses and often records. And it has also been the venue for several live concerts and tonight it plays host to a special radio centre 50th anniversary concert which will be broadcast live during the John Creedon show with guests such as Ash Bellex One the Henry Girls Aoife Scott Frank and Walters and many others including my former radio colleague and piper Peter Brown and of course my current radio colleague <laughs> and Kayleigh House presenter uh, Kieran Hanrahan Studio One uh, right now I'd say Kieran. I mean it's it's a wonderful big studio with these kind of little tier of seats up at the top I know many you can fit into it 75 or 80 but you can get a lot of people down on the floor of Studio One A lot of One. people down, down on the floor the entire orchestra is there and an entire set maybe there's four bands I suppose set up in mm. there including the house band where Peter and myself come in we haven't played to, we played together I suppose about 25 years ago on radio <laughs> just the once so we're doing a reprise of that tonight Wow With, um, with some others with, So yeah there's, there are a few <laughs> there are a few people in there for sure This I, I suppose if walls could talk Peter <laughs> It's <laughs> certainly a phrase you could use for the for the studios in this building. Um, how innovative was it in 1971 when it was presented the way it is with this kind of square that goes around and all the building, all the studios are along the walls, if you like, but underground. It, it must have been groundbreaking. I don't know what other radio stations would be like around Europe or that, mm. but, but it, it, I think it was Michael Scott was the architect yeah. as far as I know. So it must have been groundbreaking and of course the reason as you say for being downstairs is the fact Sound that the soundproofing yeah. and it meant that sometimes you'd come out and you'd be aware that it had been raining for eight or ten hours and you wouldn't have known this if you were working yeah. that long, you know. But it is interesting that there were different studios for every kind of thing. Like you had the Studio One, the big one that, that we're playing in tonight. Mm. Studio Eight was for small, like chamber music or Still course, used for, for music sessions in that respect, yeah, you know. and in particular, like, I mean, everything happened there. We had some lovely recordings, a great acoustic, but also that was where all the fanning sessions with Dave Fanning and that mm. and Ian Wilson and things. I think you too cut their teeth in there, if I'm correct. That's yeah. they made their first recording. But then there were different ones. There's 10, which is essentially like for politics. You always see that buzzing when there's a general election on, you know. Yeah, a so, big studio again, as several guests could be down on the floor of that. And in between 8 and 10, of course, Studio 9, the drama studio. Of course, which, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Still yeah. very active. So uh, I don't know who put together the sort of template, but they were thinking ahead, thinking far ahead. You know, there's no doubt about that. And Studio One, I don't know if there's anything like that in, in the island. Like before they came here, I know that they did have music studios. There was one in the mm. O'Connell Hall and there was one in Portobello. And I think that was well enough catered for. I think the Symphony Orchestra was in the Francis Xavier Hall. But Studio One is a beautiful thing. And it's great to see it tonight with so much life and action. Yeah, because it. it is. I mean, obviously, at Cayley House, you've been in, in, not in Studio One. You've been in places all around the country. But Studio One is, it's ready made. It's perfectly set up for a live broadcast, for a live kind of Cayley House with orchestra and, and the whole kit and caboodle that we've seen, sure. seen this well, evening, actually, Kieran. We have been in there with, with Cayley House as well, which yeah, is a, a fantastic thing. Yeah. But every time we bring bands, we even brought the, the National Folk Orchestra in there a couple of months ago. When you bring them in there, they just look around. I mean, it's, it's probably, if to look at it, might mm. be the most sort of, you know, beautiful uh, aesthetic place to look at. But to be in there and to feel that 
sound when you're playing in there is quite something special. So any time we've brought artists in there, they're just in awe of the place itself. There's something magic about it. We've been in Studio 8 as well, Peter, you remember going back over the years, we went to Studio 8. They're, whatever it is about the studios here, like they're, they're, they're built for sound and I think all the artists that actually come in here feel that and feel the world. Yeah, and studios. I certainly, I, I have this, I've had this experience myself with musicians over in Studio 8 that we've had on this programme and they all talk about the history of that studio. I mean, the people that have played their yeah. world stars local stars, national stars. It, it really has been a, a place for talent, I, Peter. I remember now, Studio 8 it was, but I remember that we, we brought in some musicians and they had just recorded an LP, as it was at the time. But I remember one of them saying to him, having, when they heard the sound that was got in there, saying, I only wish we had known about this. We, we, we would like this. The other thing I remember of Studio 1 was in my early time here, before 2FM started, there was a poem called Ken's Club on a Friday night and we used to do some live concerts. I remember one night with Step Aside, for example, you know, but that was really good as well to have rock music in there. And I suppose, what are you talking about, 1978, I suppose, yeah. you know, but it's, so it can do anything. I mean, the lineup tonight, you know, you have some written down in front of you there, so in front of you on a page. Uh, I it's mean, amazing. it is, it is the, a yeah. who's who of contemporary Irish music. Well, it's a good, good, well, you never hear the names like Bell X1, certainly mentioned on Kelly House, but they're in Studio <laughs> 1 tonight. And they're in Studio 8, actually. They're using both studios. Oh, right, both so studio both one and Studio tonight. 8, which yeah. I think is a great innovation altogether. John McAuliffe is going to be reading a poem in there. Now, Peter, myself, Murren is going to play a tune with Murren McAuliffe, uh, yeah. Eve McCormick. So that the, the, the presentation staff and former producers and stuff are going to get together to play a few tunes as the house band for tonight. So looking forward to that. Troy Bannon, who works here as well, and Colm Healy, who's an OB uh, man from County Clare, but he's, he works with uh, uh, Reddy Nogelthita. He came up for the night as well to be part of it. So it's a bit of a party. It's great to play a few tunes with a few friends as well. Memories that stand out for you, Peter, from your, from your time in any of the studios in this building I mean there are so many of them I'm, I'm sure but there must be one that kind of pops to the to, to the top is careful, there careful no, yeah. <laughs> possibly there one might have been one you can tell us about possibly it. Might, like, someone, there's nothing jumps into my mind I just remember in my just in the very early time here just making the long note on a, on a Monday afternoon for transmission that night it was just something very new for me yeah. to do that with, with uh, uh, it, it was a problem which kind of kept it was instantaneous in terms of what was happening in traditional music because you know you made the programme in the afternoon and then it went out that night and then you went into a public slatteries on the Wednesday and people were discussing and famous you know Christy Moore when he was doing gigs in the meeting place on the Monday night he used to he would go on stage at nine but he used to put a a bar stool up and a transistor on it and the audience would all listen to the long notes so it really Mm. kind of cut to the heart of what was happening in in traditional music. Which is a kind of a Cayley House in reverse in some ways Well there's no doubt about it Peter I mean you know you you produced Cayley House going back over the years before I was involved which is 27 or 8 years now at it but before that even the importance of it as a programme to people around the country it was just so important. Listen enjoy the night tonight and enjoy being the house band what a house band to be on this very special celebration and just before we finish up yes we will be in a place called Stage 7 tomorrow night where we will be visually available to you as well and I'll tell you how you can watch us tomorrow night but um, for tonight let me tell you that Paula Shields was the researcher Ollie Hamilton was the broadcast coordinator Ashton Gruffley was on sound and tonight's programme was produced by Keshi but Peter and Kieran have to make their way over to Studio One now, and I have to make it's your way go. over to Studio it's One. All go, <laughs> all go for sure. We are handing over now to John Creedon in Studio One for a live concert to mark 50 years of the RTE Radio Centre.